If you have your Bibles with you this morning and you want to turn there, I'll be taking some scripture from Ephesians in uh, chapter 2. And uh, then we'll probably be looking at Genesis uh, around chapter 6 through chapter 8. Uh, and, you know, of course, with the Thanksgiving holiday looming upon us, you know, you might think that uh, I'm going to be reading a scripture about Thanksgiving and all that. But really, I think more importantly than uh, giving thanks is knowing why you need to give thanks. And because, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we are thankful for are things that are just absolute gifts to us. They're not anything that we've worked out or that were due to us, that we've earned in any possible way. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul sums it up really well. And we'll start reading it about verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, but he refers to salvation and exactly how we've acquired it. And, you know, we've all heard the acronym for the word grace, that it means God's riches at Christ's expense. And of course, uh, I find that very apt. I find that, uh, you know, whoever came up with that, uh, that that really does. That sums it all up. But you see, that first step toward that grace has to be made in faith. And uh, here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul begins to explain that to the church at Ephesus so that they wouldn't think that they've earned it, that they were so good that they deserved it or anything like that, because it's very plain, we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve the mercies of God that we get them because God loves us. And God's mercy is that great thing that when this world becomes a terrible place, it'll be when God's mercy is removed. It'll be when man has slapped God's merciful hand away for the last time. It'll be whenever that man gets turned over to his own devices. And a lot of people choose that in their daily life where they don't want God's mercy and they think they can handle it all on their own. And the problem is, is when we're young we feel like that but when we look into the future and we begin to realize that there's likely fewer days ahead than what there are behind then that becomes a bit of a problem for us and Paul is addressing this arrogance that is inherent in the flesh to look around and say oh no I have everything that I've got because that I deserve it well, I'm thankful that God doesn't really tally things on what we deserve, but rather uh, whom He loves and who loves Him. And we'll start reading at verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us. Verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. Verse 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now, if you're counting, uh, there are several times that He's mentioned grace and He's mentioned Christ Jesus. And here's the thing, salvation doesn't happen without Jesus. And how do we get Jesus? It's by God's grace. And how did we get to the grace? Because we stepped out on faith. That it is a normal progression that you have to get there. And a lot of people want to skip to the end and say, well, I'll just take Jesus. Well, you don't get Jesus without the grace of God. Jesus looked at people several times when they seen Him as the Messiah. And He told them, He's 
said, it's not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you, but it is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to convict a soul. They begin to get concerned about heaven or hell. And they begin to wonder how they're going to spend eternity. And that's when they have to step out on faith. And he goes on and says in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, Not of works, lest any man should boast. Because people would look around and say, Well, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Peter. I know this guy, and I know that guy. But rather, Paul looked around at him and said, If you know Jesus, that's all you need. There are no big eyes and little U's in the kingdom of God. That the greatness of God is that He loved us so much that while we were sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that He forgave us through the blood of His Son, that the law was satisfied. And a lot of people may look around and say, that seems too good to be true. Well, with God, if it's that good, it's absolutely true. But a lot of people want to look around and they want to say, no, that, that can't possibly be that easy. I must have to go and to, uh, 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 mutilate myself in some way or hurt myself, uh, uh, make some kind of sacrifice or something like that. Paul said, well, that's fine. If you really want to sacrifice, crucify the flesh. Do it daily. Put it in its place. Don't let it have dominion over you. And pick up your cross and follow Jesus. But rather, don't pander to the flesh. And you see, the thankfulness that should come in every Christian's heart, that should be there continually, is to look around and know that all of the good that we have, all of the things that we value, all of the things that make life worth living, they're a gift. They're not something that we've earned and worked out, but rather they're the gift of God. That God looked down at a man and He decided that He would love him and to take care of him and to make provision for him. And this was before man ever fell in the Garden of Eden that if you look, you'll find in chapter 3 in the book of Genesis that man defies God. And sins doesn't believe in the Word of God. By chapter 6, man and his own devices has looked around and he's become so evil that God regrets having ever created man. And if you were to turn there, you would find that it talks about and it leads up to how that it says that man's imagination is upon evil continually. Sounds very similar to today's times, honestly, if you think about it. One of the things I had an occasion Friday to talk to some of my students about was I told them, I said, the biggest thing that worries me about young people right now is they don't seem to be able to take anything seriously. Everything is a joke. They'll joke about things that I wonder if 9-11 was to have happened today if they wouldn't be joking about it tomorrow because they can't take anything seriously. And they looked around and I said, am I wrong? And they all simultaneously said, no, you're right. And I said, I think that's a symptom of the fact that people are looking around saying, the world is getting worse. And if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. That they look around and they don't see any hope. But I can tell you, there's still hope. God is still on His throne. Jesus Christ is still in the business of saving souls. Dead ears still hear His voice. But you see, the problem is, is that most people's concern is everything other than that. 
And you see in the time of Noah, and Jesus said, I believe it's in the book of Matthew that Jesus said that in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, when Jesus makes His return into this world, when no longer the Lamb but the Lion, when the Lion of the tribe of Judah comes back, He said it will be just like it was in the days of Noah. They'll be marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking, proceeding as though everything were normal. Even though there are people such as ourselves here today who would look at them and say the end is nigh. And we've seen those in movies and in popular culture, haven't we? In cities like New York City where a guy has a a sign on the front and the back and he's walking around holding up a sign that says the end is nigh. And it's always taking his tongue in cheek whenever they show it in movies. Oh, that's just some kook. Exactly the same way that they talked about Noah. That Noah's crazy. But you see, there was one person in the time spoken of in Genesis chapter 6 that found grace in the sight of God. And it was Noah. And the only reason he found grace in the sight of God was when God told him to start building a boat, he did it. Because when a person believes, they do. They move. They change things. They begin to work regardless of the cost. Now you think about everything that Noah endured. And, I, and I've tried to imagine this. I imagine that he endured financial hardship. I imagine that people laughed him to scorn. I imagine that uh, people wouldn't let their kids talk to him or listen to him or anything when that he would try to tell them, uh, when they would say, hey buddy, why are you building that boat? Why are you doing this? And he'd tell them. Have no doubt that he'd tell them. Warn them of the wrath that is to come. Because what you had, every nail that Noah drove, every time that he daubed pitch and sealed that boat up and everything, he was counting on God to make it float. He was trusting in God that that boat wouldn't have made it. Noah, I don't think, was a boat builder by trade. He built a boat because God told him. God gave him the schematics, gave him the plan, told him exactly how to do it. And Noah did it. God set up everything that happened just exactly as God had said. I believe before the animals started coming to Noah there that he might have at least had maybe a slightest little inkling of a doubt. But then when he seen things that God said would happen. And we've all done this. We've stepped out on faith and the devil's right there saying, that's ridiculous. Why are you doing this? You look like a fool. You shouldn't be doing these things. It's the same as whenever anybody's made it to the altar. Or the day of your baptism when the devil's there saying, now you didn't get anything. You got nothing from this. It's just liver shivers and emotions. You're not saved. Nothing has changed. And none of this is real. And we've everyone fought that fight at one time or another, if not continually throughout our Christian lives. But in the enduring, that's where that we possess Our very own souls hanging on when every good thing tells us, let go. You know, if you go back into the book of Job and you read about the things, and I'd always taken this, uh, I guess, incorrectly until that I seen somebody explain it on the internet. And I, I was imparted with godly wisdom through this person, but they talked about how that it was, and I'd always kind of joked about it that, you know, that, that Satan was allowed to afflict Job in every possible way. And so he took everything away from him but his wife. 
And I thought, how bad must she have been that Satan was like, I'm going to keep her there. But that wasn't the case. I misunderstood. Job and her were one. He wasn't allowed to touch Job. When two people get married, they're no longer twain but one flesh. She was off limits. And when she looked at Job and told him, you ought to just go ahead and curse God and die, she was looking at him. She wasn't telling him that in derision, but rather she was pitying him because she couldn't bear to see him go through these things. But he endured because he knew that there was something better and he knew whether he deserved it or not. If it's good to suffer, it's good to suffer for a good cause. And he was suffering for the glory of the name of the Lord. Jesus, when He hung on the cross, He suffered for a good cause. If you suffer, make sure it's for a good cause. Noah suffered for a good cause. And everything that Noah endured... You think about what he endured, you know, that all the years of being made fun of and everything. Well, all those people died. Some people would look around and say, well, they got what they deserved, didn't they? Well, yes, but I don't think Noah took any great pleasure in that. I don't believe that he did. You see, he preached, he talked to them, he asked them. You know, if there would have been some come say, hey, Noah, I think you're on to something here. Can I help you? God would have grafted them right in because they believed because they heard. That's where real faith starts at. You hear, you believe. If you don't believe me, ask Rahab the harlot. Remember her family? The only ones to survive the destruction of Jericho? Found to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Rahab the harlot? Who saved the Hebrew spies? And you remember what she said? She looked around and said, I heard about what your God did to the Egyptians. And I know that He's given this city into your hand. And all I need is a little bit of mercy. You know what I asked for whenever I got down on my knees and bended the knees before Almighty God? I was asking for mercy. I wanted to not die and go to hell, but I wanted to live. And so I sought mercy. And in mercy, it's that you get out of the judgment that is rightly judged on you. You see, because justice... A lot of people in this world, they run around and say, I want justice. No, you don't. Because justice, if you wanted justice in all things, every time that you were driving down the road and the speed limit was 55 and you did 56, you'd get a ticket. Every time you rolled through a stop sign, you'd automatically get a ticket. And there's no reward in it. You don't get a reward for stopping at the stop sign or always obeying the speed limit or paying your taxes on time or whatever it is. There's only punishment in justice. The Pharisees, that's all they wanted. They thought they wanted justice. As long as they were the one meeting out the punishment. But what they really needed was mercy. And so... The Word of God talked about mercy. The mercy of God. And in the story of Noah... We find that because Noah found grace in the sight of God, he was saved by his faith because he believed God. It was counted unto him as righteousness. Now, critics of the Bible will say, oh, wait a minute now. In Genesis chapter 9, if you just fast forward a little bit after Noah had spent all that time trusting God and everything, he grows a nice little vineyard. You remember that part? They don't usually teach that in Sunday school. 
So kids, if you've never heard this one, listen up. That he grows a vineyard, gets him a bunch of grapes, and he gets drunk and passes out drunk and naked in his tent. His son comes in and sees him. Tells his brothers. His brothers come in and cover him. And a lot of people would say, that's the best God has. Let me tell you this. Would you rather be judged by your worst moment? Your weakest time and your biggest failure? It didn't say Noah was found to be perfect in the sight of God. It said he found grace. That's what I found. If it was perfection, I wouldn't be saved. If God demanded perfection, there's not a person here that would be saved at this point. Now, did Noah mess up? Yes. You read of no figures in the Bible other than Joseph, son of Jacob, and Jesus, that there's nothing recorded of where they fell short. Now, I know Joseph fell short. He was a flesh and blood human being, but Jesus didn't. Joseph didn't make any mistakes, and he trusted God, and he found grace in the sight of God. Noah made mistakes. King David made mistakes. Adam made mistakes. Seth, Enoch, Elijah. Pick one and you'll find that they made a mistake. I mean, the most audacious part of the story of Jonah is the fact that Jonah fought God every step of the way. And then when he goes and preaches. Now, now, now you think about the absurdity of this. Jonah goes to a city of about 100,000 people. And he preaches that God's wrath's coming, and what do they do? They repent. One of the most successful evangelists of that time, and you'd think, well, then Jonah's happy. No. We find Jonah sitting on a hillside, griping and complaining because he wanted the Ninevites to get theirs. They'd been mean to the Israelites, and he, when God told him, my wrath is going to be poured out on them, I imagine Jonah said, well, good, it's about time. Wondered when you were going to swing around to dropping the hammer on the Ninevites. And then God said, but I want you to go and preach to them. But God, they might repent. Yeah, I know. Well, God, you'll be merciful. You notice how we want the mercy of God for ourselves, but not for anybody else? Have we prayed for our enemies? And ask for God's mercy for them. Somebody that we don't particularly like. Somebody that's wronged us. It's real easy to pray for people we like. Brother-in-law, sister-in-law, brother, sister, mother, father, aunt, uncle. You know, we'll pray and we'll pray fervently. Oh God, save their soul. What about that person that cut you off on the road the other day that you in yourself hopefully just said, I wish you'd go away somewhere and die. I mean, you ever think about that? I know I've made that mistake. Oh, but, but Brother Jeremiah, you're a preacher. You're supposed to be perfect. I'm sorry. If you're looking for that, don't look up here. I would suggest you look for it first in the mirror. If you see perfection there, then start looking for it elsewhere. You see, God's grace that Paul spoke about here, you notice that he said in verse 5, even when we were dead in sins. I mean, we weren't perfect. We weren't good enough. Noah wasn't perfect. But you know what the first thing Noah did when he got off of the ark was? If you were to turn there, and I'm going to turn to chapter 8 in the book of Genesis. 
And uh, we'll read verse 18, 19, and 20. That at this point, it's been a year. Second month, 17th day in the 601st year of Noah. The flood happened the second month, 17th day of Noah's 600th year. So one year's time, he's been on this boat. Seasick, the smell of animal dung, and everything else. And there's no portholes in the side of the ark. There's no way to look out and everything. And the first recorded time that he opens the window is when he's starting to look for land. See if it's time to get out. Looking up toward heaven. And he finds that there's land that comes to rest on Mount Ararat. And the ark is there and he's endured all of this. And he's able to get out. And the first move that he makes, it says in verse 18, And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. In verse 20, it says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He was giving thanks for having survived something that everybody else perished in. The thing that we should be most thankful for is our salvation. Because without that, every other accomplishment that we make, death is going to take away and it's not really going to amount to anything. When we sit down and we see the nice big turkey and the ham and the sweet potatoes and all of these things, the Thanksgiving dinner and the homemade rolls and all of this, if we stop for a moment and think about it, and a lot of people say Thanksgiving is a secular holiday. To me, it is not. Because I've talked to Brother Sam enough to know that you can do everything right in plowing up a field and planting crops, but it's God that gives the increase. You can do everything right and still fail, still come up short. You've got to trust God. Your job is not what provides for you. It is by the mercy of God. Man lives and breathes and has his very being in him. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And Noah knew this. The ark would have never endured had God not made sure that it did. And so as soon as he got out, he built this altar and he offered burnt offerings. He gave thanks the only way that he knew how. And in the accompanying chapter in chapter 9, what you find is that God gave Noah assurances, promises. Here's the thing. When you read the Word of God, look for the promises. That's what will put a hallelujah in your heart. You know, don't just look and say, well, I've got to follow all these commandments. Also look for the promises of God. Because think about it. Noah, after having gone through every bit of this, would he have ever strayed far from that ark if it started raining? He would have probably looked and <laughs> should I get back on the ark? Is this going to happen again? I can't get away from Mount Ararat. I can't get away from the ark because I'm afraid. 
God didn't want him to have a spirit of fear on him, but wanted him to go forth. Uh, it says uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Go and be blessed. But they all would have probably looked around and said, I don't want to get too far away from this ark. I want to have a contingency plan. I know I'm the type of person that I try to have a contingency plan for most things. Plan ahead. Hope for the best. Plan for the worst. But then God begins to tell him, verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. God basically said, nothing's going to be able to do you harm. As long as you reside under my protection. Now you see a lot of them say, well, then I'm going to go fist fight a kangaroo because nothing can hurt me, right? Well, God also says, don't test me. Don't tempt me. But He said, you're going to go out and you're going to be able to be fruitful and to multiply. And you know, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you all seen it, it was two or three weeks ago maybe, there was a spectacular rainbow right around the town of Wayne there. I mean, it was the most complete rainbow I'd ever seen. And I saw it, and there was a second one right above it. Now, I could teach a whole science lesson on why the double rainbows look the way in which they do. And, and, and you know, I had to stop a couple of times because I was about to wreck my car trying to look at it. But how magnificent that it was. And when I looked at that rainbow, what I saw was a promise of God Contained in this book. And it was a promise of God's continual mercy. After the wrath. After that God had destroyed everything. That He dumped out His wrath. And it was really only a fraction of God's wrath. And He put that as a sign for Noah. He said, this means that I'll never do it this way again. That you don't have to fear the rain. You don't have to be afraid of the water because I'll never do this again. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to look out for you. And I'll never do this again. And so people, when they look at the rainbow, hopefully they see that. They see the hope and the mercy of God. And if nothing else, they should have thanksgiving in their heart. And not just uh, the last Thursday in, in November, but rather all the time. I mean, how, how often are we thankful? I can tell you this. You sit down and start counting your blessings. If that doesn't make you feel at least a little bit better, there's something wrong. You know, the, the, the blessings that we've each enjoyed. I mean, just the mere fact that we're here today means we're a blessed people. The fact that uh, we've come here, and, and you know, I consider it an amazing blessing that I have never known Starvation. At no point in my life was I ever even close to starvation. Now, I've skipped meals, didn't always get exactly what I wanted to eat, but I've never known starvation. And in studying psychology when I was in college, I can tell you that when a person has starved in their life, especially as a little kid, that has a profound impact on them for the rest of their life. I have some students who I know, based on how they act, they have starved before in their lives. Suffered like that. And it's a state of mind that they never want to find themselves in. What a blessing it is to just have that security. Because in that same regard, 
King David looked around and he said that I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Now I think we all know that the economy is waxing worse and worse. There are shortages and things like that. I would say that a good deal of it is being hid from us. But I don't find myself sitting back and worrying about these things because I'm going to trust God. You know why? Because I trust Him when I'm able to get it and I trust Him when I might not know where the next meal is coming from. We've got to trust Him in everything. Because every meal that I ate this year, it was because God blessed me to be able to get it. That's Thanksgiving. When we thank Him continually for what we have. And most of all, that if I'm not able to find food and I starve to death, that when I die, I'm saved in Christ Jesus. You remember what Paul said, raise us up with Him. We'll go to be with Him. Last week I preached about the fact that we'll meet Him in the air. That if we're still alive, we'll be caught up with those that were dead and rise to meet Him in the air. If, that, if you're not thankful for that, to know that that's good and right and true, something is wrong. Noah, when he stopped, he thanked God. How often do we get down and pray and just say, Lord, I thank You. I thank you for your mercy. Don't, don't be like the, the Pharisee when he was there with the publican. Don't pray like that. Where he said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy over there. That I'm better than other people. No, try again. Do better. Say, God, be merciful to a sinner like me and I thank you for your mercies. Because that mercy... Brings us to grace. There's no riches in mercy. Mercy just stays punishment. But grace has riches in it. The riches that Jesus Christ bought for us. A gift. Anytime anybody's ever given me a gift, I've done my best to be thankful. My kids, when they were little, and I, I, I always tried to tell them, when you get a gift, you show your appreciation you let the person know that you appreciate that they loved you enough to give you a gift. Do we show our appreciation? You know, you don't have to dance with all your might before the Lord or anything like that. But it should be in your heart how thankful that you are. You should be so filled with thanksgiving that when somebody comes around in this world and gives you a nice little jostle, that's what sloshes out is the goodness of God. You ever think about that? I heard Chuck Swindoll say that one time. It really meant a lot to me. When he, in one of his sermons, he said that whatever we're filled with, when we get upset, that's what sloshes out. Is it anger? Are we filled with anger? Is that what sloshes out when, when things don't go our way? Or is it patience and kindness and meekness? And don't sit there and be too hard on yourself and say, well, you know, I got aggravated with somebody the other day. That's fine. But, but know you're a work in progress. Don't excuse sin. Get it under the blood. Excuse is not a cure for sin. Acknowledgement and repentance and the blood of Jesus Christ, that's the only thing that can take care of sin. That's the only way that it can be covered. And I'm thankful to know 
that my sins can be covered, are covered. Because I've been a pretty rotten person in my life. A lot of people would say, oh, Brother Jeremiah, I knew you when you were younger. You weren't that bad to do X, Y, or Z. I know me better than you do. Just like you know you better than I know you. And I can tell you that I've been a pretty rotten person in my life. And yet while I was dead in my trespasses and sin, when in my teen years I refused to acknowledge the existence of God was in complete and total rebellion, He was patient and merciful to me, bore long with me, so that I could receive the salvation that come through His Son, Jesus. To be thankful is to be acknowledging of what you've got and know that you don't deserve it, that what you actually deserve is something much, much worse. Let's all stand.